When we talk about gender conflict and violence, we need to look at three areas. So the first is the roles that people of different genders play when it comes to the violence. The second is the gendered impacts of conflict and violence. And the third is the ways in which social norms actually drive violence uh, and drive conflict and make it more likely. When armed violence erupts, women and girls are affected differently, oftentimes as a result of pre-existing discrimination and gender inequality. From front lines to displaced persons camps, the brutal impact of this violence is seen in the form of exposure to sexual violence, hunger and abuse. The United Nations Security Council Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security, adopted on the 13th of October 2000, also highlights the unique impact of armed conflict on women and girls. Resolution also puts emphasis on the need for gender equality in security processes, participation, prevention, protection, resolution and recovery. As NGO grapples with multiple security challenges and conflict, it is important to understand the multidimensional impact on women and girls and their roles in peace building. Hello, welcome to The Crisis Room, a podcast from Human Angle. I'm Hawasala Abbakar and I'm here with my colleague Murtala Abdullahi. In this podcast, we look at crisis trends across the country and answer the tough questions around them. This week, we're here with a guest, Chitra Nagarajan. She's a researcher focused on civilian protection, climate change, conflict analysis, gender and social inclusion, as well as peace building. Good day, Chitra. Welcome to the crisis room. Hello, good day. How are you? It's my pleasure to be here. Jitra, you have covered conflicts in the country and the Sahel. Can you tell us more about your findings regarding how conflict impacts women and girls in the region? When we think about violence and who commits violence, we think of men. Um, And of course, in Nigeria and in other countries, men tend to be the majority of those committing violence directly. Mm -hmm. But we know that people of all genders drive conflict. Um, So even though in Nigeria, women are not so active in government security agencies compared to men, they are and can be quite active in community militias such as the Civilian Joint Task Force in Northeast Nigeria and also in armed opposition groups. Um, So, for example, we see ways that women um, play very key roles in organizations like the CJTF. Um, They... um, find out information, they um, conduct investigations, they conduct body searches and run checkpoints, which are all very key to protecting the population. And when it comes to the position of women in armed opposition groups, we found women to recruit others into these groups, such as Boko Haram, prevent people from leaving these groups, smuggling weapons across checkpoints, collecting intelligence, providing food and other supplies, uh, cooking, cleaning, and performing other crucial support roles. And, you know, without people doing these actions, um, these groups would not be able to fight. Um, But again and again, the idea that we have in our mind of those who are involved in conflict and violence tends to be male. And I think when it comes to... um, Thinking of our responses, this is really important because we need to look at the different ways that people of all genders are involved in conflict um, in order to 
push towards peaceful solutions. Um, now, of course, we have a, a general idea that women tend to be victims of conflict. And of course, that's true. I mean, as you said before, it's very clear that women face the brunt of sexual and other gender-based violence. Um, not to say that men don't, um, but we know from the evidence that sexual violence in particular tends to be targeted at women and girls. We also see ways that levels of domestic violence increase during conflict. Um, women bear the brunt of displacement, partly because the men are not there. Um, but we also need to see the ways that conflict actually affects men in gendered ways too. So we find that men and adolescent boys, um, especially those in rural areas, um, tend to be viewed with more suspicion by all parties to the conflict targeted during operations. They're vulnerable to arbitrary arrest, prolonged detention without trial, and extrajudicial killing. And we've definitely seen all of that in Northeast Nigeria. Um, so I'm, I'm just trying to give a balanced picture because for me, it's important to focus on women's vulnerabilities and the ways that women are impacted by conflict. But I think we need to also take a much more holistic picture that doesn't fall into gender stereotypes of men as perpetrators and women as victims, but also emphasize the way that women have agency and men can be harmed by violence as well. You mentioned earlier the key roles of women play in the conflict. Will it also be safe to say that the existing infantilization of women in this region, even before the violence, makes it more difficult to put an end to it? Yes, absolutely. So when you look at government strategies around de-radicalization, disarmament, rehabilitation, reintegration, the focus tends to be on men as active elements in armed opposition groups. And when women are referred to, it's with one breath, with children, um, and as adjuncts or in their connection to the male fighters. So the idea is that so-and-so so and so number of people came out and um, men came out with their wives and children rather than seeing women as part of these groups in and of themselves, which is really important because we know that of course, in the context of the Northeast, a lot of women and girls have been abducted and forced into marriage, thousands of them. But we also know that many women and girls chose to join these groups mm. or once they joined, became convinced of their ideology. And um, in terms of their attitudes and their sentiments, there's a lot of work that is needed to be done to de-radicalize them and reintegrate them into society, yet the bulk of efforts tend to be focused on the men because they're seen the, as the ones who are more active, who are more ideological, um, and so the interventions tend to go toward them. And women, if they get anything, it's because they're considered, oh, you know, and we have to do something for the women, rather than seeing doing something for the women as really key and important. And maybe I can just share a story here I recently spoke with a couple of women in my degree who told me about the actions they had taken while they were in the bush in Borno, um, how they, because of the way that they were being treated by society after coming back, 
And they contrasted that with their treatment in the bush. And they were very, they were the wives of high ranking commanders. So had a lot of power um, and were able to exercise power over other members, uh, which of course is very different from how they're treated in society today. And some of them were thinking of going back. And I've spoken to other people who work in this area who've talked about women telling them how they had taken part in killing people. Um, and I think there's a lot happening which is completely missing from the uh, the dominant picture when it comes to women, um, women's involvement in armed opposition groups in the Northeast. With problems as multidimensional as this, we would like to hear more about how these pre-existing social norms and dynamics also shapes how women are treated or viewed during conflict. It's important to note how gender actually drove recruitment into armed opposition groups, either on the part of men, because they had intense pressure to head households, provide for families, protect communities, but were unable to do so because of their economic realities, which meant that, of course, when a group comes and it offers you financial incentives and, by the way, says that you're doing this um, for the good of your religion, it becomes difficult to resist. But also on the part of women, um, due to gender inequalities in society, they thought that joining these groups would lead them to have access to religious knowledge, uh, financial security, and also a level of critical significance and power by joining these groups that they were denied by mainstream society. So that comes from um, looking at the way that society works, which is not, which is not, um, which is not conducive to either women or to young men who are not established in life. Now, in terms of the way that gender norm impacts people um, during conflict and violence, we see that when it comes to internally displaced people, a lot of women have been left to negotiate ways to safety for themselves and for their families, to figure out how to manage in an IDP camp or in a host community, um, to set up ways to access humanitarian assistance or to earn incomes for the family because either the men are no longer there because they've been detained by the military, they've been forced to join they join armed opposition groups or they have chosen to join armed opposition groups or they've been killed. And we know that a lot of men and boys have been killed in this conflict. And as a result, the burden of providing for themselves and for their families and also looking after the community falls upon women. But despite this, women continued to be neglected in decision-making. So although there have been some changes um, in most decision-making spaces, particularly at the state and federal level, women are either absent from decision-making spaces or you have one woman there who is the token woman to give the woman's perspective, which is impossible when you're in a room full of men. Um, it's slightly better at local level where women are able to take part and influence decision making, but still there. Uh, most of the decisions are taken by older and more powerful men. Um, because of the gender norms in society, which mean that even when women are invited to a discussion and to take part in a decision-making process, 
um, they worry that their community will see them as being too bold or too outspoken for a woman, especially if they're younger. It's less like that for older women. And so even if they want to say something and have important things to contribute, because of the way that these gendered norms silence women, they're unable to speak out. We also see the way that gender norms um, have led to an increase in levels of gender-based violence against women and girls. Um, we see in some places, especially not necessarily now, but a few years ago, we saw instances where families who had been newly displaced into my degree um, were seeing men from the town coming into IDP camps and offering to marry their daughters. Um, and they then gave their daughters in marriage only to find in a few months, these men became tired of their new brides, divorced them and returned them to their families pregnant. Um, and of course, this then uh, was not very good either for the young girl concerned um, or for her family. And so you saw there not just cases of early marriage, but also early divorce. And that continues in Northeast Nigeria, where um, young people get married, young girls are married to men um, who are unable to take care of them financially. And because of the gender norms that posit that it is men who must look after the family, this is considered to be a shame to the man. And so to try and kind of get away from the shame, I've seen many cases where men have invented excuses to divorce their wives, putting the blame on their wives, where really the reason that they're divorcing them is because they're not able to provide for them. And so then the woman or the girl is left with multiple children that she has to take care of herself because the man is no longer involved and is no longer then providing for the family or providing for his own children. It's quite an interesting conversation when you look at it uh, generally in uh, how multidimensional it is, whether in terms of uh, the vulnerabilities and, and the dynamics around gender and conflict. Uh, you've highlighted a lot in terms of uh, the Northeast. And so I know you've done a couple of re research around the headers and farmers' violence. And so what did you find out in terms of the gender dynamics there? Yes. Now, now that was very interesting. So this is research that I've done in Zamfara state, but also looking at Benue, Nasarawa, Kaduna, Patu and Taraba states. You've really seen the way that changes in pastoralist practice amongst the herders have um, shifted gender dynamics within um, herding families. So, you know, many years ago, you used to have a situation where the entire group of the family would travel together in migration. Now, as a result of many factors, including um, globalization, the needs for education, uh, the desire for the services that come with being settled in one place, but also the impacts of climate change and conflict, which make migration more difficult. What we've seen is that the majority of families are settled in one location, leaving the young men of their families to migrate with their cattle, which puts additional burdens and responsibilities on them because the tasks that used to be provide, uh, 
done by the entire family um, are now just being done on these young men who have the sole responsibility for looking after the family wealth that is tied up in cattle. Um, also, the ways that they're being perceived by um, communities through which they migrate is very different. You know, if you're a farmer in a community and you see a whole family uh, ranging in age from maybe 50, 60 years old to young children passing through, you see that very differently than you see a group of young men, maybe in their 20s and 30s, who are all armed because um, because they have to be these days. And there's increasing tensions between farmers and herders. The way that these young men, these young Fulani men are being viewed is very different. Um, which then also means that tension and violence is more likely, um, also because they are not there with their families. And many of these young men told me not only about the stereotyped ways in which they were being viewed by communities in terms of being seen as being um, potential perpetrators of violence, but also because of the ways that they were being perceived, ways that they were being perceived and the stresses and strains they were under and the increased difficulty of migration. Plus, they don't have um, their elders around to provide counsel and also to negotiate and ensure good relations with the farming communities that they themselves were finding themselves more easily provoked into violence. Um, so I think that's one dynamic which um, may be interesting for your listeners. Another dynamic, I think, is how a, a lot of times the point of tension comes between young herding men and women of farming communities, either um, when it comes to access to land or access to water. So I spoke to people in multiple states who were telling me about how when women go to collect water they find the pastoralist men there with their herds um, and cattle drinking the water, uh, which then pollutes the water for human consumption. Or women told me about how they felt that um, herders were more likely to encroach on farmland if they came and saw a woman there because they didn't really see them as a threat. And so therefore they would come and destroy their farms um, we also saw ways that sexual violence against women inflamed dynamics between communities. So when violence against women is committed or when um, herds encroach farmland belonging to women, there is a tendency for the men of the community um, to want to take action uh, in revenge, in defense of their women. At the same time, when women are successful in driving away pastoralists and their cattle, the men feel aggrieved because they think, how can it be that we were bit beaten by a mere woman? And so therefore they want to come back and take revenge. And so you see the different ways that gender, um, gender plays a role in these interactions. And then the final thing that I want to mention is the very high levels of sexual violence in Northwest Nigeria. Um, so when I was in Zampara a couple of years ago, I visited many of the LGAs in the state and everywhere people told me about the high levels of abduction of women and girls by all parties to the conflict. Sexual violence is committed by all ethnic groups, all occupational groups. 
it's not just one group that's doing this. Um, how women were abducted, women were raped, um, often gang raped, and then sent back to communities or left for dead um, and had to really struggle with the legacies and the stigma and the shame around the sexual violence with very little support um, and how these dynamics once again inflamed community dynamics. And so, for example, a few years ago when there was a ceasefire um, between the government and the armed opposition groups in the Northwest, uh, one of the indications that was given for why communities were no longer, were no longer safe to return to despite the ceasefire was that the rapes were continuing. And when the ceasefire broke down, the reason that it broke down was because of sexual violence committed against women by armed men, uh, which then led to revenge and retaliation and then started the cycle of violence all over again. You actually emphasize uh, in terms of the use of uh, sexual violence uh, as a tool of war in the Northwest. And it's a huge problem that uh, continues to uh, affect women and girls in that region. So how much will you see is uh, the importance of uh, women in security and peace, considering that all these uh, we've heard a lot in terms of how conflict and security affect women. Uh, and so when you have women in security and peace, would that make any difference? Yes, absolutely. Um, we need more women in decision-making um, at numbers high enough for them to make a difference. And so the research shows that having one, womb, one woman in a room of 100 men does not make a, much of a difference because she tends to be um, overlooked. She doesn't feel free to speak out um, because the room is dominated by men. Um, but when we have 30% or over of the participants in a decision-making process, women, that's when women start to make impact. And I should say also, it's just not a question of having women in a room, but making sure that you have women who have gendered analysis, gender perspectives, and can bring that to the table also, and making sure that they have links with their constituents so that they can really represent the needs and the realities and the perspectives of women in society, as, as all decision makers should, um, and making sure that you're including women from different backgrounds, of different ethnicities, different religions, women and girls with disabilities, younger women, older women, married women, unmarried women, etc., This conversation had been really insightful so far and it's important we talk about possible solutions because with everything that you have said here, it is clear that integration of gender sensitivity in security policies and programs is absolutely necessary for sustainable peace. But really, how can this be achieved in practice? Well, I would say three things. Um, firstly, looking at any issue and considering what is the gender analysis of this issue? How, what are the different roles that people of different genders play um, when it comes to this issue? What is the gender differential impacts of this issue? And making sure that that analysis is really considered um, when coming to a decision. That's number one. Number two, and we touched on this already, is looking at increasing and strengthening and making more meaningful 
women's participation in decision making. And this should be at all levels. It should be at the community level, at the LGA level, the state level, uh, and the federal and national level, and in all decision making spaces. So not just when it comes to civil society, although that is also important, but also decision making um, in security uh, spaces as well, which tend to be dominated by men in uniform. We need to find a way to infuse uh, women's participation and gender perspectives in those spaces. And as I said before, a diversity of perspectives rather than just expecting all women, like one woman to represent all women. And the third thing that I would say is really um, taking into account that when we talk about gender, we're talking about everyone. So in addition to looking at women's experiences, women's perspectives, we also need to take a gender analysis of conflict that includes the experiences and realities of men as well. So for example, when we're talking about conflict and human rights, it's not possible to do that without talking about the arbitrary detention of men and boys, the killing of men and boys, the way that norms of masculinity mean that to be a good man, you have to fight and defend and protect your community. And the way that this idea um, even though it's there to protect the community, often we see it can lead to conflict dynamics getting inflamed, um, can lead to increased conflict between groups. Um, so, for example, um, in the Northeast, with the coming of the Civilian Joint Task Force and the involvement of the CJTF and the hunters and the vigilante in the fight against Boko Haram, we saw ways that that then inflamed the conflict. And so communities which had these groups were then attacked by these armed opposition groups. We also know ways in which men who have taken on these roles as protectors and defenders of the community can start to prey on women and commit sexual violence against them. So we really need to think through the way that men have been socialized um, as well as the harm that is committed against men during conflict. Um, and it's important to look at that as well as ensure women's participation and gender perspectives in decision-making. Thank you for joining the Crisis Room, Chidra. We look forward to having you again. Thank you, it was my pleasure. This is an episode of Human Angle Crisis Room. Join us in two weeks for another episode. The producer is Usman Abbas and the executive producer is Amasakia.